and to return to the book of James and continue our study in the first chapter. When we began this series a couple of months ago, I shared with you five reasons why I'm thankful for this book. Does that ring a bell for one or two of you? Five reasons why I'm thankful for this book. And those five reasons constitute my five main objectives as we go through the book of James. I want to begin by sharing them again with you. Uh, I'll be brief and to the point. And I want to state them this time, not in terms of five reasons why I'm thankful for this book, not in terms of five objectives, but five prayer requests. And encourage you to be praying along these lines with me as we continue to make our way through the book of James in the weeks and months to come. And so here you have it, uh, five prayer requests in our study of James. My prayer is, number one, that God will save us from free grace theology. Starting to come back to you now. That God will save us from free grace theology. What do I mean by free grace theology? Simply this, proponents of that movement, which is extremely popular within evangelicalism. Proponents argue that faith is a singular act, confined to a moment of time by which we receive the justifying grace of God. Clear enough? There's your life, the continuum, beginning to end. And there's a wee blip right there. You believed. Uh, belief, faith, restricted, defined, punctiliar in nature, occurring in a moment of time, beginning and end, to such a degree that what follows is of no consequence at all. That is free grace theology. That is how they define faith. Faith is simply a decision I made. What happens after is completely irrelevant. James disagrees. Now, there's an understatement if ever there was an understatement. James vehemently disagrees with such a notion. We can look, for example, at what he says in chapter 2, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In other words, it is non-existent. For James, faith is not an act. It is an attitude. For James, faith is always evident in the way we live. In the words of Thomas Manton, in Christ, there are no dead branches. There are no dead branches. To be in Christ is to be alive. To believe is to believe. It is not to make a decision in a defined moment of time and then live a life completely divorced from whatever decision you think you made. No, belief is to enter into an attitude of life and is to embrace Christ and it is to live henceforth for Christ. Otherwise, according to James, it is not faith. And so I pray God saves us from free grace theology. My second prayer request, our second prayer request, as I pray that God will use the book of James to convince us of the nature of true religion. 
We struggle with this. All of us struggle with this. Christ's goal for his people is not to increase their knowledge. It is to transform their lives. And if the gospel is not transforming my life, something is wrong. I am an anomaly. The goal of Christ is not simply to fill his people's heads with knowledge. It is to radically change, alter the course of their lives. Look at what James says in chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Oh, the threat of self-deception. The threat of thinking we are something we're actually not in the sight of God simply because we have acquiesced, if you like, to, to a set of propositional truths, some sort of cognitive knowledge without any corresponding life transformation. For James, that is completely unthinkable. No, we're not to be mere hearers of the Word. We are to be doers of the Word. James shows us that knowledge serves a purpose. Life transformation. We must never lose sight of the fact that our creed is only as compelling as our conduct. Our creed, our confession, is only as compelling as our conduct. Do I apply the most straightforward truths to my life? Or do I simply think because I understand something theologically, intellectually, that somehow that endears me to God, divorced from any life application? If that is the world in which I live, I am suffering from self-delusion, self-deception. I am a mere hearer of the word, but not a doer. Oh, may God save us from that. May he convince us of the nature of true religion. Third prayer request is this. We're praying that God would use this book to show us what it means to live under grace. Again, Luther dismissed this book. He dismissed it, why? Because he thought it was a weak gospel. Luther completely misunderstood. While it is true that the Lord Jesus is only mentioned three times, while it is true that James never deals with the most fundamental basics of the gospel, while it is true he never gives some sort of detailed exposition of exactly what transpired upon Calvary's cross, James most certainly has the gospel in view. And so it isn't his concern to explain the gospel, what transpired at Calvary, and its significance for us salvifically. No, he's entering into the next step, what it means for us in terms of life, how we are to live it out. But the man knows the gospel. You look, for example, at chapter 2, verse 1. My brother, show no, no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so he doesn't get into the finer details, but we don't fault him for that. It's not his concern. His concern is what? It is to show the essence of true religion, the transforming effect of what it means to live continually in the sight of Christ's infinite work. I know Christ is glorious. I know what Christ accomplished at the cross. Amen, hallelujah, James is moving on. He's not losing sight of it. He is simply explaining now, okay, you believe it, that's fine. Here's what it's going to look like, it look like if you live in that reality day after day after day. Here is what it's going to mean to live looking constantly, gazing continually upon Christ's finished work. Fourth prayer request is as follows. 
We're praying that God uses this book to challenge us to evaluate our lives. I think I said some weeks ago that I find it among, if not, but certainly among one of the most convincing books in Scripture, the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the book of James, just about more than any other, makes me feel very uncomfortable. It really gets at me sometimes. It's amazing that it is such a convicting book. I mean, you look, for example, you want an example, go to chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, look at what he says here. This is frightening. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but, here's that word again, deceives, self-deception, deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. So if I haven't learned how to tame that little organ in my mouth, if I still show no discernment when it comes to speaking to others, how I address others, how I relate and interact with others, if I still demonstrate absolutely no self-control when it comes to the use of my tongue, and yet I think for some reason that I'm religious in God's sight on the basis of some other parameter, again, I am suffering from what? Grand delusion. I am lying to myself. I am deceiving myself, and I think I'm something that I'm actually not in the sight of God. Oh, it is a convicting book. He takes aim at sins of the tongue, mentions them in every chapter. He unmasks the sin of showing partiality, of being full of prejudice. It's abhorrent in the sight of James. He shows us the sin of hoarding wealth, stirring contention. He hunts down hypocrites mercilessly, giving them no rest as he lays bare the inner workings of man's darkened heart. This book, it will, and I know I said this a couple of months ago, this book, by the Spirit of God, it will either change us or it will condemn us. Those are the only two options on the table. The only two options are going to leave us with by the time I'm done, we get to the end of chapter 5. Either we will stand changed or we will stand condemned. It is an extremely convicting book, and I pray we will evaluate our lives. Fifth prayer request is this. We're praying that the Spirit of God uses this book, the book of James, to teach us much practical wisdom. It is the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. Just some examples. Chapter 1, verse 10. Like a flower of the field, the rich man will fade away. It's like a proverb, isn't it? It just sort of flows off the tongue. It's poetic. Chapter 3, verse 8, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Chapter 3, verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4, verse 14, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Oh, he has such a subtle way with words to convey eternal truths using earthly realities all as he seeks to communicate the nature of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, this book, if we will listen, not merely listen, but do, act upon it, we will find such practical wisdom. There you have it. Five reasons why I've enjoyed this book. I'm so thankful for it. Our five objectives as we study it together, and now our five prayer requests, and I do urge you to be praying with me. Those five requests that as we make through it over the next coming months, well into the year 2017, by the time God's will, we arrive at the end, we're able to look back and we will see the evidence of tangible, 
answers to these prayer requests. So where are we in our study? We're bogged down in chapter 1. I won't say bogged down. It's a bit negative. We're walking carefully, slowly, taking our time leisurely through chapter 1. The first chief section begins in verse 2. It goes through to verse 12. What do we have there? James has something to say concerning trials. We've done that. We've been there. We get into the 13th verse. This is the second section. I think he really wraps it up in verse 18. Now what's he talking about in this second section? Temptations. This is where we are. And so follow along as I read again from the 13th verse of James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is conceived, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be, there's that word again, take time this afternoon, read through the whole epistle, and take note of his use of the word deceive, deceived, deception, comes up time and time again. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's the verse we're memorizing this week. We'll get there next Lord's Day. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. And we'll get there a couple of weeks from now, Lord's will, Lord willing. But we've already focused our attention on verses 13 through 15. And basically, in a nutshell, simply put, James is going to great lengths in these verses to make sure we understand beyond any shadow of a doubt the origin of temptation. And he wants us to be clear that temptation is our problem. And temptation arises from within. It happens when? When desire lures us and entices us. By desire, what does he mean? We might be more comfortable using the word lust. I'm good with that. That's fine if that helps bring some clarification. He simply means, he simply understands what is referred to elsewhere in Scripture as the flesh. What is the flesh? It is our inclination, our basic default position, our governing principle, which is what? I love myself and you love yourself. We are lovers of self. And because we are lovers of self, the desires of our body, we'll call that the sensitive appetite, taste, sight, smell, and the desires of the mind, we'll call that the rational appetite, they are corrupted by our dominant principle, which is self-love. This is the governing principle, and it controls us, it influences everything, it shapes everything, it mars everything, it muddies everything, it corrupts everything, and here's the problem. This desire, this lust, it lures us. It entices us. And when it does, that is temptation. Homer, what did he write? The Odyssey, right? You never read it? It's a pretty good read. That's a bit boring in places, but a pretty good read overall. He relates the story of Odysseus, and Odysseus is traveling back. It takes him years to get back after the Trojan War. So we're entering into the realm of, of, uh, of Greek mythology, right? And Odysseus is traveling back after the Trojan War. 
And on part of his long journey home, he is in the Aegean Sea in a ship. And he knows that his course, he needs to pass this island, this island inhabited by sirens. These sirens, these creatures are half woman, half bird. Okay, what's the problem? The problem is this. They sing beautifully, these sirens. And so what's the problem with that? Their song is so beautiful that it lures and it entices all those sailors in those passing ships. Oh, what's the problem with that? They can't help themselves. It is so alluring that they turn aside to get closer to the island. The island is encircled with what? Rock. And the boats are smashed and ruined upon the rocks, and the sailors drown. Odysseus knows this is the only way home. And well, what are we going to do? Well, here's what we're going to do, boys. I'm going to melt a bunch of wax. And when it's softened, I'm going to plug all of your ears. uh, So you can't hear anything. And then what you're going to do is you're going to tie me to the mast of the ship, because I want to hear it. But if I'm tied fast to the mast of the ship, I won't be able to act on what I hear. So they work out this plan. That's what they do. As they pass the island, the sirens begin their song, and Odysseus nearly goes mad. Oh, it is so alluring, so enticing. And he's screaming to his shipmates to loosen it. I can't hear what you're saying is their response. But if he had his way at that moment, if it was within his power to react, to respond to that which has captured him, He would have turned that ship full course to that island, knowing what? That the rocks encircled the island, and it would have led to certain death and destruction. There you go. That's our problem, folks, right there. That's it. There is desire. The desires of the body, the desires of the mind. The sensitive appetite and the rational appetite governed by a principle of self-love means what? This desire lures us and entices us. It makes things seem so pleasurable we can almost taste it. It puts a face on things which at times it it would almost drive us mad whereby we will run headlong in order to satisfy that desire knowing, knowing, knowing full well it is wrong. Not only knowing it it is wrong, but knowing the negative consequences that will incur and yet almost helplessly off we'll go down that road throwing caution to the wind throwing reason right out the window. Why? Because desire has us. It has lured us. That hook with the worm, it has caught us. And it is now enticing us. When that temptation takes hold, then what happens? It is conceived in us. Then what happens in verse 15? It gives birth to sin. We actually act on it. Then what happens? That sin becomes habitual. It becomes fully grown. And then what happens? Well, the result is obvious. Death. Oh, James wants us to be so clear on that. We've got a problem. And it is a problem. It is a power that has been broken, thankfully, at Calvary's cross through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one with the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But the problem is what? The flesh lives on. 
And in Christ, yes, we are new creatures in Christ, but I still know that in, good, in me nothing good dwells. I am a flesh. And I know that I, I am called day after day after day to put on Christ and to live like Christ and to implement the gospel in my life and to deal by the power of the Holy Spirit day after day after day with sin in its origin, the desires of the heart. And so what did I give you a couple weeks ago? It's Ten Commandments, right? I'm not going to review that. If you did not get that, if you want that, it's on the CD out there on the website, I suppose. There you will go. Have at it. What I want to do right now is add one more commandment, an 11th commandment. And the commandment actually emerges later in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 7. Here it is. Resist the devil, and he will flee. From you. And so we've un we understand now the nature of temptation, the origin of temptation, what our problem is. We get it. I gave you those Ten Commandments that we are to obey in the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, out of our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to add one more as we deal with this question, as we wrestle with this dilemma. Well, where does the devil fit into all of this? And what role does he play? Let me be clear from the outset that we suffer from a couple of problems today. The first problem, uh, I won't name names, but the first problem arises from certain segments of evangelicalism that have put far too much emphasis on the devil, whereby every bump in the night, well, it's Satan. I got car trouble, it's the devil. I miss my bus, it's the devil. I sinned, the devil made me do it, and it's all point, 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 point. And all these individuals are doing really is absolving themselves of any responsibility and putting it all on the devil. That, that's just an extreme, an unbiblical extreme. The problem is this. Many within the reform camp have then run to what? Which we're always prone to do. Where do we go when we're fighting something? We always go to the opposite extreme. Uh, to such a degree that many today even completely deny or downplay the activity of Satan, the devil, altogether. So we want to chart a biblical course, and we want to understand that Satan is alive and well. He is a roaring lion seeking whomever he may devour, and we are to resist him. Yes, we understand that he is a defeated enemy. It's wonderful to think. We're fighting with a defeated enemy. He was defeated at Calvary's cross. Christ, by virtue of his crucifixion and resurrection, he's already disarmed all rule and all authority, all the power, all dominion. The Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of his ascension, is now seated at the right hand of God above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age and the one to come. And so we're dealing with a defeated enemy. All we're waiting for is the return of Christ, the consummation, when he will finally throw him into the lake of fire, and that will be it. But in the meantime, this defeated enemy is still active. And this defeated enemy knows us as Christians. This defeated enemy knows what makes us tick. And this defeated enemy, to a certain degree, is still the prince of the power of the air and is still very active in the kingdoms of this earth, and is still very active in terms of this world and the values of this world, and knows how to what? Exemplify, accentuate, if you like, really aggravate that sinful propensity in each and every one of us. Oh, he's a liar. We read in John 8, 44, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and he's a father of lies. Please understand that. You ever thought of it like that? You're being lied to each and every day as you walk through life. 
You're being lied to each and every day as you look out of the world and what the world values, what the world appreciates, what it esteems, esteems, the course of the world. It is lie upon lie upon lie. He's a murderer. John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a deceiver. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. He's a hinderer. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, Paul writing, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you there, Thessalonica, face to face. But Satan hindered us. He's an imposter. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's not going to come up behind you and say, boo. He's going to sneak up, unperceived, unknown, and he's actually going to look good. An angel of light. He's an accuser. Revelation 12, 10. Now the salvation of the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And he is a tempter. 2 Corinthians eleven three. I am afraid, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so we have an enemy. We have an enemy who will accentuate our fundamental problem. And so the 11th commandment is this. We are to resist the devil that he might flee from us. And so what I want to give you in just a few brief moments this morning, you're looking in horror at the sermon notes and you see 10 blanks, but I'm going to go quickly. I am going to go very quickly. I want us to delve into the schemes of our enemy. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his schemes. Are you ignorant of his schemes? We're not supposed to be ignorant of his schemes. We're supposed to understand exactly what it is he is doing, guard ourselves and defend ourselves accordingly. It's a wee bit like the game of chess. I remember a month or so ago, some of you young ones were back there in the fellowship hall. And there you had the tables laid out and all the chess boards and the chess pieces, and I kind of wandered through, and it was quite something to see you young ones, boys and girls playing. Marvelous game. Here's the difference between a chess player and a chess player. There's a difference. Saying, yeah, I know how to play chess, move those things around, which is pretty much me. It's somebody who really gets the game. You know what the difference is? A real chess player not only understands his own strategy, he knows exactly what his opponent is doing. That's a real chess player. It's not merely mapping out what I'm doing, which some of you had the blinders on. I was watching you. All you could think of was in terms of what you were moving. No, it was looking across the board and understanding what's going on inside of his head. What's she doing? Why did she do that? And what's she going to do next? And it is mapping out the various scenarios of which way your opponent might go. It is very similar when it comes to our enemy. It is understanding his strategy, understanding his schemes. And here we go quickly. Ten schemes that I have learned in my 48 years, in my Christian walk, in my Christian experience, through the application of Scripture, ten schemes of the devil of which we must be aware. Number one, he tempts us where we're weakest. You have a weakness, my friend. You might have multiple weaknesses. You better recognize them. You better get a grip on them because believe you me, the enemy already has and they're a field day as far as he is concerned. He tempts us where we are weakest. You think of the Israelites. There they are heading toward the promised land. The Amalekites, their enemies, come out to fight them. Do they? 
No, what do they do? They cut off those who were lagging behind. They didn't go right at the nation of Israel and fight them face to face. They attacked those who were kind of weak, falling behind. And there we see a key component of the devil's strategy. He will tempt us where we are weakest. He will tempt the ambitious with power. He will tempt the passionate with beauty. He will. It's a no-brainer. He will tempt the covetous with wealth. He will tempt the proud with praise. And on and on and on it goes. Do you know your weaknesses? Because our enemy does. And he will take advantage of them as he seeks to attack us, as he seeks to ignite those desires within temptation that gives birth to sin, sin that then becomes a way of life, a habit, and that habit which ultimately leads to death. Here's the second scheme we must be aware of. He tempts us when we're weakest. When we're weakest. David is a prime example of that. The sin of Bathsheba, we'll come back to it in just a few moments. But the sin of Bathsheba, I mean, that's way down the road. David's problems start when? When he's at home and his army is where? On the battlefield. What did the man think he was doing? He's the king of Israel. King of the Lord's host, the host of Israel. He was supposed to be on the battlefield, the head of his armies, leading them into the battle against God's enemies. What was he doing? He was at home. He was idle. And because he was idle, he was a sitting duck, lame duck, easy target. Idleness. We struggle with it. Carelessness. I think this third one is far too prevalent at times among us. Downright laziness. Laziness. All of these weaken our resolve against sin, thereby heightening our vulnerability. Oh, he tempts us when we're weak. Third scheme I've learned is this. I've learned this. Well, you know, I say I learned this, and yet it, I, he, I keep, well, I'm still learning this. Let's put it that way. He tempts us by degrees. He tempts us by degrees. Satan is not going to come to you in all of his vileness. Actually, let me just check something here in case there's any misgiving. When I'm saying Satan, yes, I'm referring to, 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 a, to a person, to a, a being, the devil, right? Lucifer. When, when I'm referring him now, I'm speaking more generally in terms of the devil and his angels, fallen angels, demons. And when I say that Satan tempting you, I don't actually necessarily mean Satan, the personal being himself, but certainly his followers, what we call demons, and certainly using the world system in which we find ourselves. Um, the devil is a finite creature. You understand that, right? He can only be in one place at one time. He's not omniscient. And he's got bigger fish to fry than you and me, right? When we talk about Satan tempting us, uh, we're just, I'm just referring in terms of our enemy in general. Are we clear on that? And so, yes, he tempts us when we're weakest. He tempts us when we're, uh, where we're weakest. And he tempts us by degrees. He doesn't come to us in all his ugliness and vileness. Why? He doesn't want to shock us. He likes that we're kind of sleepy, dozy. He likes that we're kind of apathetic. 
He's not going to come full frontal attack and risk awakening us to our danger and to our peril. Now, he's going to come in the back door. Again, you think of David. Uh, David was not tempted. The devil did not tempt David to adultery to begin with. That is not where David's problems began. He tempted David, as I've already referenced, to idleness. And so David stays at home when he should have been on the battlefield. And then it begins to compound. He tempts David to carelessness. The middle of the night, what's the man doing? He's walking around on his rooftop looking out. He's in a place he shouldn't be. And all of a sudden, his guard is down. You see, his idleness has now given rise to carelessness. And then the devil tempts him to what? Lust. Because he sees a woman bathing. Well, if he was out in the field with his army and not struggling with idleness, this whole scenario would never have come up. If he wasn't struggling with carelessness and just sort of wandering around flippantly, aimlessly, well, this scenario would never have been presented. Well, you see how it's just coming subtly now in the back door. If the devil had come right up to David with the temptation of adultery, no doubtly David would have been shocked. But no, here we go. It's like the frog boiling water. You've heard that analogy, right? David is almost imperceptible as to what's going on. And he's tempted to idleness, he falls. He's tempted to carelessness, he falls. He's tempted to lust, he falls. Now he's primed and he's ready for what? Adultery. It's just the next natural step. Oh, the devil will tempt you by degrees, my friend. Never think these silly little sins like idleness or carelessness or a lack of watchfulness, a lack of the use of spiritual disciplines, a lack of fellowship with God's people, a lack of the preaching of God's word, just, you're just kind of coasting. Never think you're, you're, you're in neutral. There is no neutral in the Christian life. You're going forward or you're going backward. And if you're going backward step by step, we're increasing our vulnerability and we're exposing ourselves to our enemy's advantage. Fourthly, he tempts us to doubt. The devil will tempt us to focus on something other than Christ when it comes to our acceptance in God's sight. He'll tempt us to look away from the Lord Jesus. He'll tempt us to look away from Christ's righteousness, from Christ's obedience, Christ's merit, and he'll get us to focus on something in us. Our track record, our behavior, what we're doing, what we think we're doing, but something that will just shift the gaze away from Christ to ourselves or to something else thereby again rendering us vulnerable. Number five, we need to pick it up. He tempts us when we're melancholy. You got the blues? You are vulnerable, my friend. Are you downcast? You have just increased, yes, your vulnerability to temptation. Why? Because melancholy renders us unfit for spiritual duties. We get nothing out of it, don't feel like it, therefore cast them aside. Melancholy makes us side with the devil in concluding that God doesn't love us. Melancholy, and it all is compounded, breeds discontentment. And discontentment leads to impatience. It leads to ingratitude. It leads to bitterness. And again, we have just increased the likelihood of temptation. Number six, he will tempt us. He tempts us to ignore our sin in the name of zeal. Fascinating little example of this out of the Old Testament is found in 2 Kings 10. It involves a man named Jehu, a judge, I suppose, in many respects. 
And uh, God sends Jehu to um, deal with Ahab and the family of Ahab, and basically to extinguish them, to bring judgment, condemnation upon Ahab and his household. Jehu does it and um, boasts about his zeal for the Lord, boasts to his friends, come and see my zeal for the Lord. And yet we read in 2 Kings 10, the same chapter, he was not, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of King Jeroboam. Here was a man who hid behind his zeal. Look at me. Look at my zeal for the Lord. Not realizing all the while his departure from the law of God and God's displeasure with him. Boy, we could camp out here quite a while. We could do that because I, I am convinced this is, um, this is prevalent to a degree among us right here at Grace Community Church. It is prevalent. And I see the prevalence of it in my own life. At times, perhaps I should see it more often than I do. Uh, we will ignore our sin in the name of zeal. Because you see, if I'm doing this, it compensates and makes up for that. If I'm giving a lot, if I'm serving, you know, in this and this and this, if I'm suffering, going through trials, if I'm studying and growing in knowledge, if I'm zealous in all of these areas, we can hone in on our zeal and we can convince ourselves that that zeal necessarily reflects my relationship with God all the while I am ignoring what is so obviously contradictory to the law of God, the will of God in my life. We can so easily fall into that because we're so easily deceived. We deceive ourselves. Well, I'm doing well in this. I'm so busy in this. I'm all over this. Uh, well, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to deal with that. You know, I, I, I'm busy serving in this, and, and you should see how much money I give to the church. Well, forget the fact that I'm failing in the home. Nobody really knows anyway because nobody's ever in my home. But I'm doing all this, so God's really pleased. Well, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm delving into the complexities of the doctrine of the Trinity, the economic Trinity, the imminent Trinity, and I now know words I did not know three days ago, but you know, I'm still gazing at pornography at two o'clock in the morning on a computer, but it's all right. Look at my zeal and look at what I'm growing and look at my understanding. Oh yes, I've now produced a commentary and this has actually happened. I've produced a commentary on the New Testament and it's going to be 400 pages long. People will read it. It'll be tremendously used by the Lord, but let's just forget the fact that I'm actually carrying on an emotional, if not sexual uh, relationship uh, with my with my secretary, and on and on and on and on and on. And on. How, how does this happen? How does such flagrant sin happen? It's because we will, we do it all the time. We will hide behind our zeal. Guess what? Pop, bubble burst. God is not that impressed with our zeal. He's not that impressed at all. He is impressed with sincere, faithful obedience to his word. He is impressed with those who are not mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Oh, but if we fall into that trap of trusting in our zeal, oh, the devil will grab it and turn it to his advantage and tempt us. Number seven, he tempts us with things that are good in themselves. Oh, real quick, I think Thomas Watson put it best. The devil's policy is to tickle us to death. I think it's very true for us in North America. 
Now, the devil's policy is to tickle us to death. Now, he doesn't really want to hurt us. He doesn't really want to disturb us. He just kind of likes that we're apathetic and worldly and uh, bought into a consumer mindset an extremely comfortable lifestyle. Uh, he, he's, he's good with all that, fine with all that. I'll just tickle them to death. And he'll turn things that are good, nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, except that we turn them into idols and we give them a place that they do not deserve nor merit in our lives. We begin to live for them. Our lives revolve around them, and the devil chuckles to himself, I have them exactly where I want them, tickling us to death. Number eight, he tempts us by maligning holiness. This is very common today. He tempts us by maligning holiness. Satan tells us, Satan tells us that the heavenly are foolish. The obedient are arrogant. The orthodox are unbalanced and the godly are just plain weird. If we, and this is growing in our day, if we see the gospel only as a source of pardon, and not a source of deliverance, the pleasures of sin will more easily entice us because we have a, we're walking around with half a gospel. Let me repeat that. If we see the gospel as only a source of pardon and not a source of deliverance, in other words, if we've separated justification and sanctification, the pleasures of sin will more easily entice us. He tempts us by maligning holiness. Number nine, he tempts us by pleading necessity. Pleading necessity. You see that in the case of the Lord Jesus. There he is, driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil comes to him, and what does he command him? Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. You see, these stones turn them into bread. What's the big deal? What's wrong with turning stones into bread? The Lord Jesus could do that with a word. Uh, you're hungry. You have the power to do this. You need food. Therefore, do this. Well, it would have been wrong because Christ was here to live upon the will of his Father. His pleasure was to do the will of the Father. And to respond, to react in that manner to the devil would have been to doubt his Father's care and provision for him. But the devil will come to us and his plea will be necessity. You need this. You deserve this. You have need. You have the right, because it is the most important thing in life, to meet your needs. Therefore, I am justified in this action, even though I know it violates the will of God, because my needs are of paramount importance. And what is of most importance to me at this moment is me satisfying what I have identified as an essential, a necessity. And number 10, let me just go back to number 9. I, I, I struggle with this. I'll try to put it in subtle terms. I, I can recall years ago meeting with a man. He was indulging in an extra, extramarital affair. And it floored me because... Um, his, his justification was, for, was, it, was what? I have needs. That's how, that's how he legitimized it. I have needs. They're not being met in the marriage context. Therefore, I am, I'm justified in meeting those because it's what it is to be human. I have needs. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll do that, won't we? Uh, well, th this is something that is part of my being. It's part of who I am. 
Um, I need it to be, oh, the one we love, oh, I'm going to need this to be happy. My friends, we don't need anything in this life to be happy. We don't need anything in this life to be satisfied. The only need we have is the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no other needs. When we start diving into that, well, I have these needs and I must satisfy these needs, we have fallen again into what? James terminology, self-deception. You are now semi-delusional. We've gone right over there thinking that these are needs that have to be satisfied for me to be fully human, fully a man, fully a woman, whatever. You put it into context. Use whatever example you like. The wash, it all comes out in the end, doesn't it? No, this, this justification of our actions on the basis of necessity, that comes straight from the father of lies, the devil himself. Number 10, here we go. Wrap it all up. He will tempt us to presumption. Presumption. Oh, Samson, oh, Samson, oh, Samson. How the mighty have fallen. And so there he is, Samson, with Delilah. There he is in his drunken stupor, right? His head on her lap. And uh, they've gone through the process, what, three or four times? Tell me the source of your strength. He fibs each time. Finally, he tells her, it's my hair. He's asleep. He's passed out. She takes the razor to his head, shaves it. He wakes up. What does he say when she cries out, the Philistines are upon you. Wake up, Samson. Here's what he says. Oh, it's sad. I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free. That's what had happened the previous times, right? What does the text of Scripture say? Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson presumed. He presumed upon the grace of God. I can do this. I can live like this. There aren't going to be any consequences. God will forgive me anyway. Oh, the devil tells us that there is plenty of time to deal with that issue. Plenty of time to repent of that sin. Plenty of time to mortify that lust. Plenty of time to exercise that grace. What he fails to mention is simply this. No, in actual fact, this might be our last chance. We dare not presume upon the grace of God. The devil will tempt us to do just that. So what are we supposed to do? The words of James 4, 7, as we wrap it up, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist the devil? It goes all the way back to those Ten Commandments, which I've given you previously. We can sum them all up in this. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do not satisfy the desires of the flesh. We put on Christ, meaning what? Each and every day I live upon the merit of the Lord Jesus. I know I'm accepted in God's sight for one reason, one reason alone. His name is Jesus Christ. I'm not coming to God on the basis of how my day was yesterday, the day before, or even my morning and how I think things are going to go the rest of the day. I approach God, I come to God as a reconciled Heavenly Father based entirely upon the merit of Christ, and I never lose sight of that. I understand that now I commune with Him in His names and titles. I bear the name Christ. I do? I'm a Christian. What do we think the word means? Christian. It means Christ is ours. And I bear his titles as well. I, I'm now part of a, of, a, of a royal priesthood, a king, a priest, just as Christ. Yes, a far greater king, a far greater priest, but I'm part of that kingdom. 
I commune with him in his merit. I commune with him in his names and titles. I commune with him in his righteousness and holiness. I understand I am the righteous one in the sight of God because of Christ. I understand I am holy, set apart to God in the face of God before God because I am one with the Holy One. I'm communing with him in his righteousness and holiness. I commune with him in his death. I've died legally. It's done. The execution has been passed. It has been carried out. I've been buried, the old man left in the tomb. And I have risen to a new life in Christ. Therefore, I resist the devil, meaning what? I engage in spiritual warfare. And I engage in spiritual warfare above all else by living daily in the reality of what it means to be in Christ. That's it. I am one with the Lord Jesus. I don't think we ever are called to engage the devil directly. I'm not one of those who uh, understands it from that vantage point. I think we are called to engage the devil indirectly. Uh, you look at the armor of 1 Thessalonians 5, you look at the, 1 Thessalonians 4 or 5, you look at the armor of Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, that armor is simply what? The putting on of that armor means what? the putting on of Christ. We fight the devil. We resist the devil. We engage in spiritual warfare principally by what? Not going looking for the devil here, there, and everywhere. No, 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 no. Uh, by focusing on Christ. By putting on Christ. By living in the daily reality of our identity in Christ, thereby making no provision for the flesh. And as we make no provision for the flesh, we take what from de the devil? all that he has, because all he has to use against us is the flesh. And that is how we resist him, whereby he flees from us. But it all comes back to this great truth, central truth, what it means to be one with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Our Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. And we thank you for how it speaks to us. It speaks to the sinful man, the individual outside of Christ, and it beckons him, it commands him, it commands her to turn from their sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus for the salvation of their souls. And it speaks to your people. It speaks profoundly and deeply to our condition exhorting us and challenging us and encouraging us and instructing us in the way that we might live in a manner that is worthy of our calling in the Lord Jesus. And so help us to take and apply what we've heard and considered this day. And may it be for the furtherance of your kingdom within us and among us. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.